0: I invite you to open your Bible or one of the Pew Bibles to the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans as we continue uh, to make our way through this letter in our sermon series. This, This morning's passage is in Romans 12 verses 3 through 8, but to set that passage in its context, I'm going to begin again at verse 1. It's important that we hear verses 3 through 8 as flowing out of verses 1 and 2. And I hope you'll be able to see that connection um, as we work through the passage. Let us ask the Lord, whose Spirit breathed out and preserved His holy word in Scripture for our benefit, our instruction, our correction, and our growth in grace. Let us ask His blessing. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks that you are our great and loving God who has drawn us to your Son, Jesus Christ, that we might be united to him by faith through the Spirit to live as your children and to live as the body of Christ upon the earth. And so, Lord, we pray now that you will nourish us Strengthen us, renew our minds, and transform us by your word. To the glory of your name, amen. Let us hear the holy word of God. It is written. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, reasonable worship. the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all praise, honor, and glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, remember, in, now at Romans 12, we have made the transition from doctrine to discipleship, though we never divide doctrine from discipleship in, in life. Nevertheless, we see that transitional shift uh, in the way in which Paul addresses the church in Rome. And let's, let's make a note here that the passage uh, on which we're focusing this morning verses 3 through 8, you see, are addressed to the body. They are addressed to the church as a corporate body. Um, The Christian faith is not an individual philosophy. The Christian life is not an individualistic life. Of course, we we believe as individuals, we put our faith into practice as individuals, but my point is is that there's no such thing as being a Christian and just going out and living the, the, the Christian life while not being an actively incorporated member of the church by being an actively incorporated member of a church. And we'll see that as we go through this. So the idea of being a Christian, sort of adopting Christian values, adopting Christian beliefs, adopting Christian philosophy, morals, whatever you want to call it, and just sort of living your life out there unattached is absolutely foreign. It's just a foreign concept. It's a very popular concept in America, extremely popular concept in american evangelicalism and it could be called church less christianity you won't find it anywhere in the new testament you just find it in a lot of places in american culture today (laughs) but but let that not be the case with us now another thing i want you to see is that in in the last three weeks focusing on verses one and two we've Spent a lot of time talking about what does it mean not to be conformed to this world and to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And we've made some very specific applications in the last couple of weeks. But what I want you to see now is that verse 2, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, It cannot be cut off from verse 3 and verse 3 can't be cut off from that. Now Paul turns and he immediately begins to speak about life in the church. Life as the body. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. For by the grace given to me, and now he is asserting his apostolic authority, I say to every one of you. Now that is an authoritative authoritative statement. It sounds very much like uh, an echo of Jesus who would say, Truly, truly, I say to you. This, this is what Paul is doing here. He is now asserting his apostolic authority, having been appointed and commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ, the head and king of the church. Now the apostle is passing on the word of the Lord to the church of Jesus Christ. I, by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Now what, what's that telling us? It's telling us that the person, listen, think about verse 2. The person who is not conformed to this world, the believer who is not conformed to this world, the believer whose mind is being renewed by the word of God, will not think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Or if he catches himself doing so, he will repent of it. See the connection between verse 2 and verse 3. The renewed mind is a humble mind. Personal humility is the first and primary mark of personal transformation into the likeness of Jesus Christ, right? Go from from the end of verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed into the likeness of Christ by the renewal of your mind and don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. See that connection? It's right there on the page. Now, compare that passage, uh, uh, compare these verses to the passage from Philippians 2. Philippians 2, which forms the basis for the Philippian Creed, which we will affirm following the sermon today. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus or which was Also in Christ Jesus, have the mind in you and have this mind among you corporately as the body of Christ. The mind of Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form, making himself a servant. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When the Apostle Paul says in verse 3, I say to every one of you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, he's really pointing every one of us to Jesus Christ. To live with the mind of Christ, which is a mind of humility, a mind which is not ashamed of being a servant, a mind which considers the best interest of others, a mind which renders obedience to God in the doing of his will. This is true humility. This is Christ-likeness. This is the transformation of our lives by the renewal of our minds. True, true humility. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. True humility is not a matter of thinking less of yourself. It's a matter of thinking of yourself less and of others more. Humility is not poor self-esteem. You see, just as as Paul was appealing to the Philippians for unity, he's making the appeal for unity to the church in Rome. And we're going to see this over and over and over again. And so the word of instruction for each one of us is to know ourselves, to know ourselves rightly, to know what our God-given strengths are, our gifts and our abilities to know what our weaknesses and our limitations are, to know where and how we can be helpful in the life of the church and as witnesses in the world, and also to know those areas which are really beyond our capability and our responsibility, right? For us to know ourselves through faith in Christ. So this verse is, is not, it's not telling us to have a low view of ourselves, It's not telling us to put ourselves down or to loathe ourselves. Really, to the contrary, it's telling us to have a very realistic view of ourselves, a sober judgment, an accurate assessment of ourselves in light of the faith which has been given to us, in light of our relationship with Christ, so that we may function in the life of the church in a way that builds the church up. So to think with sober judgment about ourselves is to think with humility. It is to it is it, to think with accuracy about ourselves, realistically, to know our place, to know our role, to know how we can be helpful, to know where we really don't you know, we, we really don't have much to say, right? Because we're not qualified. The, because the difference and the variety of gifts in the church, the diversity of gifts, should build the unity of the church. But what is the enemy of unity in the church? What is the enemy of unity in the church in this respect? It's quite simply personal pride, spiritual pride. One person thinking more highly of himself or herself in comparison to another person whose gift is different. That's the issue, comparing ourselves, putting ourselves over others or comparing ourselves putting ourselves under others in a kind of self-pitying, self-loathing kind of way. That's just a perverse form of selfish pride, really. So to be true and faithful and effective, fruitful members of the body, functioning members of the body, that's what this passage is about, we must know ourselves in the light of Jesus Christ. In the light of the fact that all of us, every single one of us, as believers in Christ have been justified. How? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That by God's mercy we've been adopted as His child, a brother or sister of Jesus Himself. And that we've received the Holy Spirit who has gifted us to serve the Lord in His body, the church. You see, that's the great equalizer. How on earth could we ever have a, a superiority complex in the church or even an inferiority complex in the church? Christ alone is our Savior. The Spirit is the one who gives gifts, and therefore we're to be thankful for the ways in which God has gifted us, whatever that may be, and use those gifts as God has given us for his glory without comparing ourselves and our gifts to fellow members and the, and. and and their gifts. So the diversity of gifts should build the unity of the church, and spiritual pride is the enemy of that unity. Now, as as Paul does in 1 Corinthians and also in Ephesians, he, in this passage, speaks of the church using the analogy of the body, the physical body. For as in one body we have many members, bodily parts... And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. Now, look, that's a clear statement about connection, belonging. <laughs> it's, it's, it's no accident that we speak of church membership. Isn't it a good thing that, you know, my arm isn't sitting on the pew with Pastor Jonathan right now? You know, and that my leg was over there helping Debbie play the piano or something. It's ridiculous. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. But th- that's the point. We're being addressed as a body. A body. We are members. That's what membership is in a local congregation all right and there could be no more clear statement on unity and diversity in the church than this verse many members one body well it affirms our individuality that's our diversity comprised of different gifts of individual members of the church but it doesn't stop with individuality and here's the key for us in american christianity today The individuality of members does not lead to individualism. The individual members are not disconnected from one another. The individual members do not exist in isolation from one another. The scripture says that we are individually members one of another. We're members of one another we belong to one another we're connected to one another we live and work and worship in synergy with one another now we try to it is our intention to manifest this not only in sunday on sunday mornings when we worship together as the as the gathered flock of god of course have our sunday school we try to manifest this also in small groups in in our neighborhood flocks, that we live it out. It's not just a Sunday morning thing from, you know, 9 to 12. It's at the center of our life. It shows forth our connectedness, our belonging to one another-ness, if you'll allow that expression. This is what it means to be the church, the Lord's people, His body. And again, you, you can imagine what an amputated body part is like. It's a very gruesome image. It makes the point. There. But the body of Christ is a living body. We, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. And let me just, you know, let's just make it easy. You know, our relationship with God is not merely vertical. And that's the problem, I think. Today, we just think about, okay, it's my relationship with God. I've got Jesus as my Savior. That's it. No, that's not it. Because the cross of Jesus Christ has a horizontal beam. You see it? Everybody say that. The cross of Jesus Christ has a horizontal beam. Got it? Get it? another expression it shows that we are we are one body in christ and our bodily parts our physical bodily parts you know are not in competition with one another they do not work in adversarial opposition to one another even though they do not all have the same function so the fact that The members of our physical body do not all have the same function means that we can walk and talk and chew gum all at the same time, and that's wonderful. Diversity works in unity. The same is to be true, real, evident in the life of the body, the church of Jesus Christ. So, Paul makes the application. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us Let us use them. So there, again, is the admonition for all of us to use the gifts which God has given to us. Let us use them. Now, on the one hand, we have the warning not to think more highly of ourselves, and now Paul is saying no excuses, no false humility. Because, you know, oh, well, I really can't do anything. False humility is just a guise for apathy, and irresponsibility and a lack of accountability in the life of the church. Paul says that ain't going to work. You've got gifts, use them. This is the stewardship of our lives, time, talents, all. This is the presentation of our bodies as a living sacrifice, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. In 1 Corinthians 12 and then in Ephesians 4, Paul also lists gifts of the Spirit and the lists the lists overlap. They have similarities, but they're not identical in any place, and not identical with uh, this list in Romans 12 because Paul didn't intend for any of the lists to be exhaustive in and of themselves, he simply is speaking to the particular needs of particular congregations. And we benefit by having all of the recorded lists in Scripture, right? So we can look at 1 Corinthians 12. We can look at Ephesians 4 this morning. We're looking at Romans 12. And Paul lists seven gifts. Three may be categorized as speaking or word gifts, prophecy, teaching, exhortation. Four may be categorized as deed or doing gifts, service, contributing, leading, showing mercy. So in the first century, prior to the finalization of the writing of the New Testament, in the time in which Paul was alive, there were those in the New Testament, in the the first century church, who were gifted to speak prophecy, That is, the special revelation of God spoken to the first century church. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that the church is built on, quote, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That refers to the Christian prophets of the first century era the apostolic era. The apostles themselves were prophets speaking the revealed word of God, much of which now is recorded. It is the the written word of God in the New Testament documents. The apostles functioned as prophets and there were other prophets. And and these prophets were gifted to speak of things to come in the future, as did the Old Testament prophets. So, for example, in Acts chapter 11, uh, there's reference to the Christian prophet Agabus who prophesied the great famine, which was to occur and did occur in the first century and affected the Christian community. But today, now that we have the canon of Scripture, the the completed New Testament. There is no more new revelation of God for the people of God. Today, the preaching of the Word, rightly expositing and rightly applying the Word of God written in Scripture based upon the apostles and the prophets, this is a Form of prophecy in the sense of speaking forth the Word of God to the people of God, but not in terms of telling the future, but again, speaking the Word of God as re- revealed in Scripture to the people of God. But let's be clear there is no new revelation. There may be better, clearer insights into the revealed Word of Scripture. But there is no new prophecy in the sense of new revelation, no new word of God with a divine authority on the level of the Holy Scripture. So, whenever anyone tells you that he or she has a new revelation, a new word of the Lord to direct the life of the church, to change Christianity, a new revelation with divine authority to be followed, do not be deceived. What's new? Is not true. This was the delusion of Joseph Smith, who founded the Mormon Church based upon the supposed new revelation he received from God and added it to the Holy Scriptures. Or shall we say, the prophet Muhammad and his writing of the Quran to correct the so called errors of the Judeo Christian Scriptures. Or shall we say the false teachers in the church today who now tell us that the Bible does not mean what it says or that the Bible, sa- what the Bible says on certain subjects needs to be discarded and ignored as outdated and unenlightened. False prophets all. Paul then mentions service. The underlying Greek word is the word from which we get the word deacon or diaconate. And in fact, Paul may be referring to to those in the office of deacon, though that's not definite in this passage. But in any case, it refers to those people who have the the wonderful gift of hands-on, take-and-run-with-it, get-it-done ability to meet the practical needs of the church and who do so with such a quiet and humble, and willing, and joyful attitude, and we are truly blessed here in covenant with members who willingly share their gifts of service. Thanks be to God. The gift of service is seen in showing hospitality, hosting wonderful fellowship, giving special care to church members in need, taking care of the building and grounds, doing what is necessary to provide Orderly services of worship on Sunday morning. Ushering, preparing for the Lord's Supper. Taking care of our children in the nursery. Wow, what gifts of hands-on service. As we have been gifted, as we have gifts, let us use them. Next is teaching, distinct from preaching helping the congregation to grow in the knowledge of the word, the application of that word in real life. It begins with children's Sunday school. It takes place in women's Bible studies, young mothers' groups, as well as the other adult Bible studies and adult Sunday school classes and small groups and personal conversations, having gifts that differ, let us use them. The last of the word gifts is that of exhortation which means uh, depending on the context can mean encouragement, a word of encouragement, a word of comfort, a word of consolation. probably has to do with offering counseling not in a professional sense but in personal conversation in the context of friendship and fellowship in the church, conversation based on scripture in which we Or a member uh, uh, offers advice or sympathy, wisdom to a believer who needs someone to come alongside them. And by the way, that's what it means, literally. The word means to come alongside. It's the word used of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the one who comes alongside to comfort, to encourage, to console. And, and, And so, you know, you don't necessarily need to be a licensed counselor or an ordained pastor to offer that kind of exhortation. Mature Christians out of their own experience, gifted by the Holy Spirit, can offer that kind of support to fellow Christians. And I know that that kind of counsel and encouragement takes place in the life of our congregation. So be ready and willing. And and some of you are, are, are really gifted at that. You know who you are. Having gifts that differ, let us use them. Next, the, the doing, deed gifts, that is, is leadership. And it un, this undoubtedly refers to pastors and elders because the word is used also in other contexts to refer to elders exercising oversight. And, and there again, it's, it, it's, it's, it's implicit in this passage. Everywhere in the New Testament, when the Apostle Paul, and it happens a lot, mentions elders overseers, leaders. The implication is, you know, there's there are also those who are under their leadership and under their oversight, right? It just makes logical sense. That's, again, that's body life in the church. Body life in the church, connected life in the church. I And I can assure you that our elders are indeed leaders who exercise spiritual oversight with great care and humility. And I've seen spiritual growth among our elders over the last seven years like I've never seen before in my 34 years of ordained ministry. It's been quite a journey. We're blessed. I'm thankful. But again, the mention of specific leaders implies a corporate body Under leadership, under oversight, it implies a covenanted membership. It implies body life, connectedness. This is the Christian life, life that is connected as a member of the body. Paul then mentions the gift of giving or contributing. And the rule there is with liberality or in generosity. And the point there is God loves a cheerful giver. The generosity which is mentioned speaks not so much about the amount but about the attitude. A generosity of spirit, a liberality of spirit which freely gives, joyfully gives, cheerfully gives, faithfully gives without any expectation of control or influence or as we would say with no strings attached. Right, Because you've given yourself to the Lord. And then the giving of your financial gifts follows freely. And we're very thankful. Very thankful. We see that. We see that in the life of our congregation. We've been blessed. This is the work of the Spirit. This is the work of God's Spirit. Think about this. Transforming our lives. Transforming our life as a congregation by the renewal of our minds. We can see it happening. And we need to give thanks and praise and glory to God. Then the last one is the one who does acts of mercy. says, with cheerfulness. This is the, refers to the ways in which we care for one another. We reach out to one another. We support one another. We make sacrifices for one another. Showing mercy to those who are hurting or troubled or in any distress. Proving to them by our cheerfulness that they are not a burden to us. That's the key. The way we care for hurting people, to do it with cheerfulness so that we, they know that they're not a burden. But rather that it is our joy and our honor to serve them in the name of Christ any way that we can. This is the key the key to our life together, taking care of one another in ways that show that we actually belong to one another because we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members Of one another. This is the beauty of the church of Jesus Christ. Unity in diversity. Diversity in unity. This is what the world hungers for. And they cannot see it. If they do not see it. In the life of the church of Jesus Christ. Is this the kind of church to which you want to belong? Is this the kind of church that you want us increasingly more and more to become? Is this the kind of culture and atmosphere you want to permeate our congregational life? I hope you do. I pray so. I believe that you do. I think we see it happening. All glory to God who's transforming our corporate life by the renewal of Of our minds. So that we're not conformed to the world. And our church isn't conformed to the world. The world of consumerism. The world of entertainment. The world of passive attendance. The world of check the box. The world of go and get what I want out of it. Uh Uh-uh. Uh-uh. That's conformity to the world. That's the church being conformed to the world. We don't want to be that. Do we? Right, we don't. Okay. So let us continue to pray and having gifts that differ, let us use them. Because we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members One of another. To God be the glory. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for loving us so much that you speak truth which builds us up and gives us life. We pray, O Lord, that your Spirit will work your word in our hearts and grant us that grace that we together might grow into that full spiritual maturity which is in Christ Jesus, our Savior, and to his name be a glory, honor, and praise. Amen.